Hello, everyone. Welcome. I'll begin now with a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to begin now looking at the wonderful stereographic image that you give us of your Son, your Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the writings of the Gospels, the writings that you inspired and have preserved for us for our benefit. We ask that you would help us to reawaken our interest and our desire to learn more about you. We ask that you would guide our understanding in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. So last month we began looking at the New Testament with Matthew, part one. And tonight we continue with Matthew, part two. Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. One of the things that we didn't talk about last time was the authorship of the Gospel of Matthew. As um, is often the case, the liberal scholars don't think that it was written by the Apostle Matthew. And they think that it was written much later that, than that. It could not have been written, they say, uh, by an eyewitness. Uh, but we don't believe that. We do believe it was written by the Apostle Matthew. And there's some good evidence for that. First, there is the internal evidence, the evidence found inside the book. There are numerous references to money in the book. And of course, Matthew was a tax collector. So it's not surprising that he would have a good grasp of money issues. Uh, there are many self-references to Matthew, the tax collector, in the book. And uh, he's, he calls himself Matthew, the tax collector, as, as uh, you would expect as he would uh, want to practice Christian humility. There is uh, an invitation in the book that, that the tax collector Matthew gives to a mere dinner as opposed to a great banquet. Uh, the other synoptic gospel writers, uh, Mark and Luke, refer to it as a great banquet. He just refers to it as a dinner. In accord with uh, his experience at keeping records, he recorded the long discourses of Jesus. And we'll look at those in the book. Then there is the external evidence. Evidence is found outside the book. The church has accepted that Matthew is the author from the earliest times. The early father Papias, a disciple of Polycarp, who was in turn the disciple of John, the apostle John, ascribed it to Matthew. Later fathers of the church are virtually unanimous in ascribing it to Matthew. Some of these are Justin Martyr, Tertullian, and Origen. Some think that, that Matthew changes Levi, which is what he is called in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke, to Matthew, which is the name that he is referred to by in this Gospel. Uh, some think that he did this to gain an apostolic name. In other words, he sought to change his name when he became a Christian. 
Others uh, think that just one man uh, bore both names, as sometimes happened. It, it sometimes happened in, in the ancient world among the Jewish people that they had two names. So he could have had both names, the name Levi and the name Matthew, just like the Apostle Paul. Uh, it is often said that, that uh, Saul changed his name to Paul, but that really isn't the case. If you, if you read the book of Acts very carefully, it talks about Saul, whose name was Paul, or Paul, whose name was Saul. I forget which way it is, but he actually had both names, Saul and Paul, from, from infancy. So his name wasn't changed, he just had both names. And he began to use the, the name Paul uh, when he went out into the Gentile world. We'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to the book of Acts. In either case, uh, Jesus' citation of Hosea 6.6, 6, I, God, want mercy and not sacrifice. It makes the call of Matthew an act of mercy toward outcasts, such as tax collectors and notorious sinners. Many scholars think that Matthew's gospel was written in Antioch, Syria. The word provenance simply means where the, where the gospel came from, where it was written. And many scholars think that, that Matthew's gospel was written in Antioch, Syria, a city that boasted a significant Jewish population, yet was the first center for outreach to the Gentile world. Many of the original Christians migrated there. It was from here that Paul was sent on his Gentile missions. So it was a, a center of missionary activity as well as a, having a large Jewish population. Our earliest witnesses earliest witness for a knowledge of Matthew is Ignatius, and he was the bishop of the church in Antioch in the first quarter of the second century. Purposes of Matthew. There is a great deal of debate about what is the purpose of Matthew. Well, I don't really think we have to discern what is the purpose of Matthew. We can argue all day about that, but I think there are several purposes of Matthew that are quite evident from a reading of the book. The first of these is that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of David, son of God, son of man, Emmanuel. Uh, uh, Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who, who points that out, that Jesus is Emmanuel, he's God with us the one to whom the Old Testament points. So that, that's definitely one purpose of Matthew. Secondly, that many Jews, especially Jewish leaders, sinfully failed to recognize Jesus during his ministry. That is another purpose of Matthew. A third is that the promised kingdom has been inaugurated by the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. So the kingdom is not yet here in its fullness, but it has been inaugurated. Another purpose is that this messianic reign is continuing in the world as believers, both Jews and Gentiles now, submit to Jesus' authority, overcome temptation, endure persecution, wholeheartedly embrace Jesus' teaching, and thus demonstrate 
that they constitute the true locus of the people of God and the true witness to the world of the gospel of the kingdom. Christians demonstrate that they are the people that God is working with at this time. And finally, uh, that this messianic reign is not only the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes, but is the foretaste of the consummated kingdom that will dawn when Jesus, the Messiah, returns personally. Now, I wanted to talk uh, some about the, the nativity of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. There are two gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, who tell us about the nativity, the birth of, of Jesus, and each one approaches it from a little bit different perspective. But the first thing that I wanted to point out is that the images that you have of the wise men, Matthew is the one who tells us about the wise men. Luke doesn't tell us about the wise men. He tells us about the shepherds. But the images that you have of the wise men from years of nativity scenes and Christmas cards are not biblically accurate. So you, you normally think of three wise men riding on camels, as we see here. And another thing that you often see in nativity scenes and Christmas cards is you see the wise men over to the left there and the shepherds over to the right both groups at the manger at the same time. That also is not biblically accurate. So let's, let's take a look at some of the myths of the Magi, the wise men. First, we want to look at the number of wise men. We want to look at the mode of transportation, how they arrived to visit the Christ child. And we want to look at the time of their arrival, because there are some erroneous ideas about all three of those. First, the number of the wise men. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Notice that it doesn't say anything about three wise men. It just says wise men, plural. So there could have been two, there could have been 200. We're not told in the Gospel of Matthew. We're just told that there were wise men. We aren't told that there were three. And regarding the mode of transportation, how did they get there? Well, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. But it doesn't tell us anything about how they came. They could have been riding on camels. They could have been riding on donkeys. They could have been riding on horses. For that matter, they could have been riding in carts pulled by donkeys or horses or even oxen. We're not told in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this idea that the wise men were riding on camels probably comes from this verse in the book of Isaiah. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense 
and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Now this verse does talk about camels, and it does talk about gold and frankincense, not myrrh, but just gold and frankincense. So many people have, through the centuries have applied this verse to the wise men. But if you read the verse in context, you will find that it's not talking about the wise men. It's talking about things that will happen during the millennial kingdom. So this really doesn't tell us that the wise men rode on camels. The time of arrival. So this is when the wise men, the magi, arrived. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. There's two things I want you to notice about this verse. First of all, they are in a house. They are not at the manger. They are in a house. And notice also that Jesus was not a newborn infant at this time. He was a child, a toddler. So quite some time had elapsed before the wise men arrived to visit the Christ child. He wasn't an infant. He wasn't a newborn infant, and they did not arrive uh, shortly after his birth, as the shepherds did. There are also some things that I think you'll find quite interesting about the Magi, who they were, and, and the circumstances, the background involved with them. Because we are familiar with the importance of the Roman Empire in the life of Christ, in the life of the Apostle Paul, in the life of the early church, we tend to think that in the first century, the Roman Empire was the only game in town. Well, actually, that is not quite true. Because just east of the Roman Empire, there was a vast empire called the Parthian Empire. And there was strife between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. In the first century, um, the, the armies of Rome seemed pretty much invincible. But not so when they faced the Parthian Empire. They, they tried to defeat the Parthian Empire, but they never they never could uh, could conquer them. The Parthian Empire was, a, was an empire that they couldn't defeat. So the land of Israel, which was caught in the middle between the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire, uh, the, the borders seesawed back and forth. And this was the reason for Herod's alarm that you'll read about in, in chapter 2, verse 3 of Matthew. There's a, a picture of the Parthian Empire. It was the successor to the Persian Empire. It occupied pretty much the, the same territory as the, as the core of the Persian Empire, uh, mostly in what is today uh, Iran and uh, Afghanistan, that area. There's another map of the Parthian Empire. 
notice the notice Armenia to the northwest of the Parthian Empire. This was the flash point. This is where Rome and the Parthian Empire of them came into conflict in this border area. There's a map of some of the movements of Roman armies and Parthian armies in this area of, of, of Armenia. Pompey, the first Roman conqueror of Jerusalem, attacked the Armenian outpost of Parthia in 63 BC. In 55 BC, Carsus led Roman legions in an attack on Parthia proper. So they tried to take on the Parthian Empire. The Romans were de decisively defeated at the Battle of Carrhae with a loss of 30,000 troops, including their commander. So the Romans didn't fare so well when they went up against Parthia. The Parthians counterattacked with a token invasion of Armenia, Syria, and Palestine. So they, they did at times control the land of Israel. Nominal Roman rule was reestablished under Antipater, who was the father of Herod the Great. But control of this border region between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire shifted back and forth several times between the between the Roman Empire and, and the Parthian Empire. So Herod the Great had thus gained the throne of a rebellious buffer state, which was situated between two mighty contending empires. At any time, his own subjects might conspire in bringing the Parthians to their aid. So that's one reason why Herod the Great was so paranoid, or so worried about someone trying to overthrow him. It says in, in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, that when Herod the king heard this about the, the Magi, the wise men coming to Jerusalem, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he was very worried and all Jerusalem was worried. They would not have been worried about just three guys on camels. So it was much more than that. In Jerusalem, the sudden appearance of the Magi, probably traveling in forests with every imaginable oriental pomp and accompanied by adequate cavalry escort to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory, certainly alarmed Herod and the populace of Jerusalem. The wise men came from the east. They came from the Parthian Empire. So if you were coming from the Parthian Empire into Roman territory, you wouldn't want to come alone. You'd want to have an armed escort with you. So the Magi probably had an armed escort. Herod was concerned that these Magi were trying to provoke a border incident which would bring swift reprisal from Parthian armies. Their, their, their request of Herod regarding the one who was born king of the Jews was a calculated insult to him because Herod was a non-Jew 
who had contrived and bribed his wife into that office with the support of the Romans. So he was not an heir to the throne legitimately. He, he forced his way into the office. And so he was very concerned when the Magi came talking about someone who was born king of the Jews. Consulting with his scribes, Herod discovered from the prophecies of the, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Hiding his concern and expressing interest, Herod requested that the Magi keep him informed. After finding the babe and presenting their gifts, the Magi, being warned in a dream, and that was a that was no surprise to them. They were in, into these uh, experiential things. Uh, they departed to their own country, and they, of course, were ignoring Herod's request. So that gives you a little bit of insight into the, the Magi, the wise men. We want to look at the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. It's arranged in kind of a chiasmic structure. It alternates between narrative and discourse, narrative and discourse. And we see in the first part of the book that there's narrative and then there's discourse and then there's narrative and there's discourse and there's narrative and discourse. And that discourse in chapter 13, the parables of the kingdom, that's sort of the, the focal point, the hinge of the book. So once we get there, we start working our way back out again from the parables of the kingdom and there's more narrative than discourse, than narrative, discourse, narrative. Let's take a closer look at those five discourses. The first discourse is the Sermon on the Mount. And I mentioned before that, that Matthew, as a, a meticulous record keeper, had taken records of all of these long discourses, long sermons that, that Jesus had given long teachings or sermons. The second discourse is the commission and instruction of the 12, the 12 disciples. He commissioned them as disciples and gave instructions to them. And the third discourse is the one I mentioned, the parables of the kingdom of heaven. The phrase the kingdom of heaven is interesting because Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers who uses that expression, kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke refer to it as the kingdom of God. Uh, last time I remember that Barb Fredrickson asked a question with regarding, uh, I believe his name is, um, what is his name? It starts with an O, Blosser is the last name I believe. And he felt that the parables of the kingdom of heaven in, in verse in chapter 13 uh, only apply to Israel. I was thinking about that, and I, I think I know where he may have gotten that idea. Many years ago, there were some professors at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary who seized upon this idea that Matthew spoke of the kingdom of heaven and the other synoptic gospel writers spoke of the kingdom of God. 
And their thinking was that the kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of God. They're two different things. And so that's where the idea came from that this kingdom of heaven uh, only applies to Israel. However, you, you really can't maintain that. And I, I don't think that there are many people who, who still hold to that because when you compare the gospels, the synoptic gospels, you'll find that when you look at the parallel passages that are found in all three of the synoptic gospels, you will find that when Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven, Mark and Luke are referring to the kingdom of God. So they're, they're really the same thing, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. They're just different expressions that Matthew uses regarding the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven. The other two synoptic gospel writers call it the kingdom of God. So it's really the same thing. The next discourse is about humility and forgiveness among Jesus' disciples. So this is the passage, for example, that talks about if, if your brother has sinned against you, it, it gives you the protocol, it gives you the procedures for going to your brother and, and trying to reconcile your differences. So this discourse is about the humility and forgiveness among Jesus' disciples, how the, the Christian communities is to function. And the last discourse in the book of Matthew, the first part of that discourse is the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. This is where Jesus issues seven woes against the scribes and Pharisees. But most of the discourse is the Olivet Discourse, which tells us about the tribulation, what will happen to Israel during the tribulation, during the end times. And there are markers within the text that, that set off these discourses. Each discourse ends with the formula. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished that whenever you see those words, that tells you that the discourse has come to an end and we've moved into a, a narrative section. And similarly, the formula from then on, Jesus began to introduce a large new section of, of narrative. You can see examples of that in 4.17 and 16.21. One of the things that, that Matthew brings out is that we have in Jesus a new Exodus and a new Moses. So he highlights some parables, some parallels, excuse me, between this new exodus and the old exodus, the new exodus being our deliverance from sin and the fact that Jesus does it. Jesus is like a new Moses. He is the deliverer. So some of these parallels, a divinely spared baby. We see that both with Moses and with Jesus. Uh, the Israelites came out of Egypt Jesus also came out of Egypt. And you might not think of this one, but a saving branch. Jesus is, of course, referred to as the branch. And he is our savior, our healer. And 
back in the time of Israel coming out of Egypt, there's also a branch, a healing branch, and you'll see that in a few minutes. Then both Moses and Jesus are a lawgiver on a mountain. And also both Moses and Jesus are accompanied by three, three individuals when they go to the mountain. Both Moses and Jesus have glowing faces when they go to this mountain. They are glowing when other people come into their presence. Now I mentioned before that there are five discourses in the book of Matthew. Just as there are five books in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses. A divinely spared baby. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So Jesus was divinely spared. And of course, we know that Moses was also divinely spared. And when she, Moses' mother, could hide him, Moses, no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds at the river's brink. Moses was also divinely spared. And you know the story how Pharaoh's daughter found this basket and raised Moses as, as her own child out of Egypt. This is talking about the Holy Family now. They, they remained there in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. The Lord brought out the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So we also see that Israel came out of Egypt and Jesus came out of Egypt. The saving branch. Now I mentioned this before. I explained to you last time that Nazareth, the name Nazareth is derived from the Hebrew word for branch, Netzer. And he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And we see this word Netzer in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So how is, how is a branch involved with Israel coming out of Egypt? When they, Israel, came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, that means bitter. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree branch, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So this branch that made the water sweet, this healing branch, was a picture, a symbol, a type of the branch that was to come, Jesus. A lawgiver on a mountain. This is talking about the Sermon on the Mount, as it is called, 
seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, that was the typical practice for a teacher, and he sat down to do his teaching. And he, when he sat down, his, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. That's when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And with Moses, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So both Moses and Jesus were lawgivers. You might not think about this one, but both Moses and Jesus were accompanied by three when they went to the mountain. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. This is when, at the time of the transfiguration. And with Moses, and he said, God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, the dove, and Abihu. So there were three individuals who accompanied Moses to the mountain, just as three individuals accompanied Jesus to the mountain. One more parallel between the exodus of Moses and the new exodus, the new Moses, and Jesus glowing presence. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And you may remember that when this happened, uh, the people were so terrified that they asked Moses to veil his face because it was shining. Now, since Jesus is greater than Moses, we see that his face shines like the sun. It was shining even brighter than the face of Moses. There are five books of Moses, and there are five discourses that Matthew highlights in his gospel. There five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you can see there the, the verses of the five discourses in the book of Matthew. So there you see the parallels between the Exodus and Moses and the new Exodus and the new Moses, Jesus. Matthew had a penchant for organization. He favored groupings of three. Remember once again that he's a tax collector. He was a tax collector. So he was a person who, who focused on organization, organizing ideas and words. And he favored groups of three, and we can see that quite often in, in the book of Matthew. His uh, genealogy is in three sections, remember from last time. So all the generations from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
So three sections of 14. There are three temptations by the devil in Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation was to turn stones into loaves of bread. The second temptation was to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. And that may refer to the southeast corner of the temple courts, dropping off into the Kidron Valley. It was much higher back in the, in the first century, much, much further drop in the first century than it is today. In the first century, it may have been as much as 200 feet or so from the pinnacle of the temple to the floor of the Kidron Valley below. And then the third temptation was the possessing all the kingdoms of the world. Now, of course, Jesus would eventually possess all the kingdoms of the world anyway, but Satan's temptation was, you don't have to wait. You can have your best life now. But of course, Jesus didn't do that. He came to suffer on our behalf and then obtain the kingdoms of the world at the appropriate time. There are three examples of righteous conduct, three prohibitions, and three commandments. This is in the, the Sermon on the Mount. The three uh, examples of righteous conduct are regarding almsgiving or charity, prayer, and fasting. The three prohibitions are don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth, don't worry, and don't judge. And then there are three commandments, three things that we are told to do. One is to ask, seek, and knock. The second is to enter by the narrow gate. And the third is to beware of false prophets. Matthew speaks of three miracles in the first verses there of chapter eight. The first miracle is cleansing a leper. And Jesus fulfills the law. He tells the healed leper, the cleansed leper, to go report to the priest. The second miracle is the healing of a centurion servant. And the centurion, of course, is a Gentile. So Jesus promises Gentiles admission to the end time banquet of salvation. And the third miracle is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus becomes the object of her service. Immediately after she's healed, she gets up and begins serving Jesus. There are three parables of growth in chapter 13. And then there are three more parables. The three parables of growth, the weeds among the wheat, the wheat and the tares, as we call it, the parable about the mustard seed and the parable about the yeast. The measures of leaven, the, the leaven that a woman hid in measures of meal. And the three more parables, the hidden parable of the hidden treasure, the uh, parable of the pearl of great value, and the dragnet, where the good fish are separated from the bad fish. So that's Matthew's use of three 
Matthew also makes use of seven. He also favors groupings of seven. So there are seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. And there are seven woes against the, the scribes and Pharisees, just leading into the, to the Olivet Discourse. There are some peculiar expressions that I wanted to talk a little bit about. And all these peculiar expressions were not peculiar to the readers of Matthew in his day, but to us, these, these, these expressions can seem rather peculiar. This is the first one. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, what does that mean? That sounds rather odd to us. Not letting your left hand know what your right hand does in the giving of charity means slipping a gift to a beggar unobtrusively with the right hand alone rather than offering it with both hands extended so as to attract the attention of onlookers. So that is the idea about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, is that you don't do it to be ostentatious, to put on a show. You just want to help. You don't want to attract attention to yourself. That's the idea. But if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. What in the world is an evil eye? Well, this is from the, from the King James, but more modern translations will talk about a bad eye or a, an unhealthy eye. Well, still, what does that mean? An evil eye, a bad eye, an unhealthy eye. A healthy eye, sparkling like a lighted lamp, stands for generosity. An unhealthy eye, dull with disease, stands for stinginess. So that's what an evil eye represents, a person who is stingy. Whereas a person who has a good eye, a healthy eye, is generous. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Well, that seems kind of insensitive on the part of Jesus, kind of cold-hearted. He wouldn't even let this guy go bury his dad. Well, what do you think is going on here? This disciple shows his falsity by asking to go bury his father before starting to follow. He probably refers to a commonly practiced secondary burial. That is, gathering the bones of his father now that the flesh has decomposed and putting the bones in a small container called an ossuary, so as to make room in the family tomb for a fresh corpse. So what it was happening in the first century is that tombs were reused. So people were placed in the tomb when they died, but once their flesh had decayed and all was left was the bones, the bones were gathered up placed in, a, in this stone box called an ossuary so that the tomb could be reused by another person. Uh, so that is what is happening. And if you remember that when Jesus was buried, 
uh, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We are told that it was a new tomb that no one had been buried in yet. And that's why uh, what is happening there. No one had been placed in the tomb as of yet when Jesus' body was placed in the tomb. So it was a new tomb. Uh, this is an ossuary, a picture of an ossuary. So it's just a stone box in which the bones of a deceased person were placed. The, the longest bone in the human body is the femur, the upper part of the leg. And so that determined the length of the ossuary could be. So it's a, a little bit longer than your average femur. So it's probably, well, people in, in that day were, were, were in even shorter stature than the people today on, on average. And so that gives you some idea that the ossuary is probably a little less than two feet long. Jesus replied, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, rejects even the most sacred of filial duties, burying your father in favor of immediate allegiance to Jesus. The idea is that you can't put off declaring allegiance to Jesus. No excuse is a good excuse for not turning to Christ. The dead's burying their dead is not meant to make sense. How could dead people bury one of their own? But to dismiss the question of burial altogether. So that's uh, let the dead bury their own dead. And here's another peculiar expression. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's one way that it's translated. So it's also translated as 70 times seven. So you'll find uh, some translations that translate it either ways, either 77 times or 70 times seven. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, you, you keep meticulous count of how many times a person has, has transgressed again you, against you. you know, 75, 76, 77. And then once you get to that 78th time, you know, all bets are off. You don't have to forgive them anymore. Is that what it means? Well, no. 77 times or 70 times seven means any number of times. It's doubtful that one person will sin against you or transgress against you uh, 77 times or 70 times seven. So it simply means a, a large number of times. You don't keep count. You don't keep track of the person sinning against you. You are always willing to forgive. Now contrast that kind of forgiveness that, we, that Jesus spoke about with the 77-fold vengeance of which Lamech boasted about back in Genesis 4.24. Lamech uh, told his wives that, uh, that a young man uh, uh, had harmed him, had injured him in some way. And he took vengeance upon him by killing him. And he said to his wives, if Cain is, 
that if vengeance is taken for Cain seven times, well, I'm going to take vengeance 77 times. So there's a, a contrast between the 77-fold vengeance that Lamech's boasted of and the 77 for, times forgiveness that Jesus spoke of. There's quite a contrast between the two. One of the verses in Matthew is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And that is the verse that says, judge not. Well, of course, that is the favorite Bible verse of atheists, humanists, New Agers, and liberal Christians. And the way that they understand that is the verse, they understand the verse to mean that no matter how blatantly people disregard the behavioral instructions of Jesus, they should never be criticized in any way. Well, they don't even know the whole verse. They certainly don't know the whole passage, but they don't even know the whole verse. Uh, all, the only part they remember is the part that says, judge not. And of course, they interpret that as in, in a way that um, makes them feel good. So the way they understand it is whatever you do, uh, it's okay. You shouldn't criticize it because the Bible says, judge not. Well, let's look at the whole passage. That is not the meaning of the passage. The passage tells us that we are not to judge according to superficial, humanly devised standards. That's, that's the kind of judging that we are not to do. But the passage goes on to tell us that we are to judge according to godly standards. Not our own standards, but God's standards. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it doesn't say, don't judge. It says, don't judge according to human standards. Judge by godly standards. And we have to consider the whole counsel of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we are, we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? So we are to judge, aren't we? The Bible does not tell Christians not to judge. It just tells them not to judge according to superficial, man-made, human, humanly devised standards. And another scripture that we find in the book of Matthew is about Peter, the rock. Jesus says to Peter when they are up near... Um, Caesarea Philippi, which is even further north than the Sea of Galilee. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is the verse that Catholics believe installs Peter as the first pope and institutes the Roman Catholic Church. Is that really what it does? Two different Greek words are used. You are Peter. The Greek word here is Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. So two different Greek words are being used. Petros and Petra. In other words, Peter 
you are a small stone, but on this massive rock, I will build my church. So Jesus is not saying that his church will be built on Peter. Peter is not going to be the one who is the foundation of the church. The switch from you to this rock suggests that Peter himself is not the foundation, but that the meaning of his name, a stone, a rock, points to another entity as the foundation. Jesus as the one whom Peter has just confessed him to be, the Christ and son of the living God. Peter has just made that confession. And now Peter is telling him that the church will be built upon him, upon Christ. Christ will be the head of the church. So, in conclusion, uh, the contributions of Matthew, some of the unique things that Matthew contributes to this narrative of, of Jesus, this image of Jesus, each of the gospel writers contributes some different things, some of the things they have in common, but each one also contributes different things, unique things. And these are the unique things from Matthew. Matthew preserves large blocks of Jesus' teaching in the discourses. We've seen that, that in the lengthy, extensive discourses, Matthew gives us the teachings of Jesus. Matthew gives additional information about Jesus' birth. There's the information about the Magi, the wise men, about the flight to Egypt. These are given in the book of Matthew, not in the other Gospels. Matthew's use of the Old Testament is particularly rich and complex. I've shown you some of the ways that that happened, both in the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, I showed you last time, and I showed you this time about the parallels between the exodus from Egypt that Israel experienced under Moses and the new exodus, the deliverance from sin that we experience under Jesus Christ. Matthew's gospel is foundational as it looks forward to what the church became. Matthew is the only one of the four gospel writers that speaks of the church. And he speaks in the church in, in two different occasions. Uh, one of them is what we've just seen with uh, Peter, where he said, I will build my church. And the other one is where he gives us these procedures, these protocols for dealing with uh, disputes within the church and, and helping people to reconcile them. He talks, he talks in there about telling it to the church. So he talks about the church. And this is giving us an indication of what the church is to become. Finally, there are shadings to Matthew's portrait of Jesus that are unique. Each of the four gospel writers presents some unique understandings and insights into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that concludes our study of the book of Matthew. And next time we will look at Mark. So I'll close with a word of prayer and then we can have some discussions, some questions, answers, observations. 
Father in heaven, we are so, so thankful that you have preserved Matthew's insights, Matthew's recordings of the discourses, the teachings of Jesus. We are thankful that we are, have been given instructions about the church, about the coming kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God coming in, in its fullness. We ask that you would help us to appreciate that, to understand that, and to prepare for the return of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.